Thanks, Em. Um, big chapter today. Uh, so let's get started, hey? I don't know whether you've ever been in a bad relationship, uh, but they're not fun. Uh, and the reason that that is the case is because they are never simple. I think it's rare that you find yourself in a relationship and one day you just wake up and you're utterly convinced that the person you're dating is the reincarnation of Hitler. Uh, it doesn't quite work like that. You might think that things are bad, uh, but they very rarely are as bad as you think they are. The reality is that things are usually not clear. And whilst you'll have some really hard things that make the relationship really hard to go forward with, there are actually some really good things as well, things that you don't want to let go of. Um, and so you find yourself in this space where you are torn and you don't know what to do. And so you stay awake at night going, is this relationship good for me? Is this relationship bad for me? Should I break up? Now, I only ever dated uh, one girl before I married Beth. Uh, and this was precisely the experience I had. And, and what made it so hard is that she was and, and actually still is a godly and loving woman. And so as far as Christian criteria goes, she ticked all of the boxes. She was godly, she was Christian, she was the opposite sex, done. <laughs> right? um, what made it hard though is that there were actually some things that it just wasn't working. There's nothing wrong with her, there's plenty right with her, but it just wasn't working. Now, the point of this introduction is not to solve your dating problems, okay? Now, you can talk about them to me later if you'd like. But the point of this introduction is to get us into the headspace of today's passage. Because in today's passage, what Paul does is he introduces us to a relationship that on paper looks perfect. But in practice, it just wasn't working. Plenty of things going for it. Everyone on the outside looking in were just going, this is the perfect match. But it was a bad relationship. Things had gone sour, things were spiralling out of control, and if they were allowed to continue that way, it was going to end in tragedy. Now, you may have been already able to figure out what that relationship is from our passage today. The relationship that I'm talking about is the relationship that we have with the Old Testament law. See, the law was given to us by God, it told us how to please God, but no matter how much we tried to follow it, we failed. And that happened from the point that it was given. The Israelites, even while it was being given on the mountain, they were worshipping idols, and so on and so forth, all the way through history up until today. It just wasn't working. And so in today's passage in Romans 7, Paul voices an opinion that nobody had dared voice up until this point. Maybe we need to get rid of the law. We need to break up. And so we're going to have a bit of fun today. Uh, we're going to work our way through Romans 7 via breakup lines. Uh, shout out to my friend Tom, he'll probably never listen to this sermon, but I've basically ripped off the structure he used when he preached on this passage. We're going to look at the passage in three stages. First of all, it's over. Second, it's not you, it's me. And then third and finally, we're going to say it's complicated. And then once we've done the breakup, we're going to have a look a bit briefly at what it looks like in life after the breakup. So first of all, Paul says to the law, it's over. And the reason that he calls the relationship is because the relationship isn't healthy. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now that phrase, while we were still living in the flesh, that's code for while we were still in the relationship. And what was the, that was happening? Well, it looks like that our sinful passions, they're being aroused by the law such that we are bearing fruit 
for death. You see, the Lord wasn't being a good influence. Instead of reforming our character, making us a better person, He was actually playing on our rebellious nature and getting us into trouble. This is every mother's worst nightmare. The law has taken your daughter out and it's past curfew and you have no idea where she is. And what Paul wants to say is that so long as we belong to the law, this pattern of unhealthy relating won't stop. In fact, what it will end in is being dead at a nightclub or in a car accident or whatever it is. So we need to end it. We need to be released. And then what Paul tells us is that the only way that that can happen is if we die. Now imagine that as a breakup line. I would rather be dead than dating you. <laughs> and yet that is what Paul says. A bit extreme, don't you think, Paul? Well, actually have a listen to his reason in verse 1. Because it's a pretty good one. Well, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those of you who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now that's interesting. Release from the law isn't like release from a dating relationship. You can't just throw a glib line at somebody like, look, I like you more as a friend, and then expect that it'll be over. Now our relationship with the law is almost, it's more like marriage than dating. Once it's done, it cannot be undone, except through death. And so that's why he says there in verse 2, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an <coughs> adulteress. You see, the wife is only free to live another way once her husband dies. And what Paul says is exactly that. This is what has happened to the Christians. We have died to the law. Have a look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And then in verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So what Paul is telling us here is that if we want to be in another relationship and live another way, a good and healthy way, then we need to end the first relationship in order to start the second. There's a definitive break going on. You can't two-time here. Because it's only when you are free from the law, that thing which is pulling you down, that you can be free to live in the new way of the Spirit and start bearing fruit to God and being pleasing to Him. And so what you need to say is to the law, it's over. Now, as with most breakups, there's going to be a bit of emotional fallout. And in this case, it's not actually the law that bursts into tears, it's the Jews. And they're not just sad tears, they're angry tears. You think, oh, I've got an angry resting face, well, these guys. So if I could stretch the breakup metaphor just a little, they're more like the angry mother of the person you've just dumped. The Christian says to the law, you're no good for me, it's over. And then the Jews, the mother, they fire up and they say, there's nothing wrong with my boy. How dare you say he's no good? Now, Paul, he gets that he's being provocative here, uh, especially because he knows that there's a Jewish audience to which he's speaking. And, and think about it, right? In the last two chapters, he has been very provocative, hasn't he? Chapter 6, what did we see? Well, we have to die to sin. We have to be set free from sin. 
And now here, what he's doing is he's basically making the law analogous to that sin, because he's using the same terminology. We have to die to the law. We have to be set free from the law. And so what Paul is really seeming to say is that sin and the law, they're of a piece. They belong in the same camp. They have the same problems. We need to get rid of both of them. And so the rest of the chapter then is almost like Paul explaining to the mother why he's done what he's done. And the way that he does that is to say to the law, it's not you, it's me. So let's have a look at verses 7 to 20. First of all, in verses 7 to 12, Paul says to the law, it's not you. Here's what the mother is thinking in the background. Verse 7, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? The objection, it, it runs something like this. If, in chapter 7, verse 6, the law took me captive such that when I was under it, all I could do was sin, then surely the law must be sin. It's no good. Can't be. It must be wicked. And Paul says, no, you're out of your mind. That is, that is not the case. It's not the law. It's not you. It's, it's something else. And just because sin arises from the law, it doesn't mean that the law itself is bad. And I think the big question as we look at this that emerges from me as I read this passage is, well, why does he even bother to respond to this particular question? Who actually cares, right? Why is he taking time to defend the law? Especially because at this point in Romans, it's very clear that if we're going to be saved, it's not through the law. It's going to be through the grace of Christ. It's going to be through putting faith in his sacrifice and being justified by God. So, so why does our attitude to the law even matter? Why do we need to provide an explanation? And I think what Paul is doing here is that he's trying to stop Christians from concluding that because the law held us captive to sin, that the law itself is the problem. Because that's not why the relationship wasn't working. Paul wants to locate the problem elsewhere. In fact, he locates the problem in sin. And what he wants to say to us is that there is a particular relational dynamic that occurs between the law on the one hand and sin on the other, that makes the relationship unworkable. Again, it's sort of as like sin is the, the angry ex-girlfriend or something, and, and just it is out to sabotage whatever relationship the law has. So whoever it is that gets with the law, you and me, that relationship will be sabotaged by sin. And Paul, he wants to tell us that this is the case and show it to us, and so he highlights two particular aspects of this toxic dynamic that exists between the law and sin. First of all, he tells us that the law defines sin. And then second, he tells us that the law provokes sin. So it defines and provokes. Let's have a look at chapter 7, verse 7, halfway through. He says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And so first, on a very fundamental level, the law tells us what sin is. We would not have known what coveting was to want what other people had if the law never told us, don't want what other people had. And so what it does is it brings us into an awareness of what is right and wrong. Now, I had dinner with a friend recently. Um, They're an older couple, so different generation. Uh, and, and once again, as is most of the time in my life, I've discovered that I'm just not socially with it. And so we came to their house, they'd recently moved into it. I found out that it was a three-story house. Now, something to know about me, I love exploring new spaces. And three-story houses, you do not come across those very often. So you know what I said? The first thing I said, really? 
can I go upstairs and have a look around? Now, apparently that is rude. I didn't know that. But the woman who was there serving dinner to me, she'd gone out of way to cook it, acted as the law to me and said, no, that's rude. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm really sorry. I had no idea that that was wrong. But that's what the law does. It tells us when something is sinful, when something should not be. But that's not the only thing that the law does. Because it exposes sin, it defines it, but it also provokes it. And this one might be surprising to you. I thought the law was supposed to create just good in us. Well, let's have a look. Verse 8, we'll read a larger chunk here. What does it say? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul, he is making a very clear distinction here. The law and the commandment, righteous, holy, good. It promised life. But it was actually sin through the awareness that the law created within us that causes us to die. Verse 8, it seizes an opportunity through the commandment. Now we know that we're wrong, all of a sudden we want to do it. Such that in this example, what sin does is it produces within us all sorts of covetousness. So another example, when I was a student uh, with Campus Bible Study, they had their mid-year conference at a conference centre called Maru. Now, one of the things about Maru, other than it being very big, is that on every single building, there was a giant red button. And under the, the button was this sign, and it basically just read, do not press this button in case of emergency, because if you do, $10,000 fine. And do you know what happened every time I walked past that button? The hand just started to go up, just a little bit. I wanted to get my Wheel of Fortune on and just smack that sucker and see what happened. You see what's happening? The funny thing was, like, every time I walked past it, whatever it was in my mind, no matter who I was that I was talking to, everything sort of just trickled out and my attention was drawn entirely to this button right in front of me, conveniently at eye level. All of my focus shifted to the thing that I couldn't do. Now let me ask you a question. At that point, is the rule at fault? No. All it is doing is outlining for me the appropriate and helpful way to conduct myself. But the existence of that rule evoked within me something that was already there, but up until that point had laid dormant. And so when the commandment was made known to me, my predisposition toward rule breaking suddenly emerged as well. I wanted to press the button. I wanted to cover it. I wanted to do all of the things that the law told me that I couldn't do. And so in that moment, sin comes alive and I die. The very commandment that promised me life actually proves to be death to me because I can't help but want to break the rule. And so Paul asks, is the law sin? No. Law isn't the problem. It gives the guidelines and it gives the stipulations by which we live well in the world. But in doing so, it makes sin known to us. It defines sin and then it provokes sin. And Paul's point in all of this is that that dynamic, that toxic relationship it cannot be changed. So long as there is sin in the world, the law will only ever be a bad partner, even though it is in and of itself good. 
It's not you. But Paul hasn't finished. He still hasn't said why it's me. And that leads us to our second objection in verses 13 to 20. Here's the angry mother again. What does she say this time? Did that which is good then bring death to me? In other words, even though the law was in and of itself good, was it intended as an instrument of death? Is it a killer? Is it a good boy going around dating bad girls to make sure that they know they don't deserve anyone like him? And Paul responds by saying no. Have a look at the second part of verse 13 there. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. He says sin is the killer. Sin is the thing that brings death. And so again, just as in the previous objection, the problem is not the law. The problem is sin. But here he goes one step further. Because where before he was talking about the relationship of the law and sin in this sort of weird abstract fashion, he now brings it home to roost. He wants to ground it in our own experience. And he says to us that that sin, that force, that principle, it's not impersonal and out there. It's actually very personal because it's in here. Have a look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Sold under sin. So here the problem. The problem is not with God and his law. The problem is with me. It's not you. It's me. I'm the problem in this relationship. I'm the reason it keeps going bad. Why? Because I am of the flesh and sold under sin. Now listen to his explanation because he will explain what this means in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. You can, you can feel the angst, can't you? He's just going around and around in circles. He has this tension within him. He wants to do one thing, but he is constantly, inevitably pulled in the other direction to do the thing that he doesn't want to do. And what Paul's point is here is that the very fact that you experience this tension within you that you know that there is a way that you're supposed to live outlined by the law and that you strive to do it but you keep failing to do it and you despair, it shows that you know that the law is good, that you know the problem is not with the law. And it's more than that because if we agree that the law is good, then we also agree that the issue lies not with the law but with us. We are of the flesh, we're sold under sin, such that, verse 18, nothing good dwells in us. And what Paul is talking about here is this funny old thing called indwelling sin. You see, that principle that took advantage of the law and brought death to us, it's not out there. It dwells within us. It infuses our members. And it works in such a way that no matter how hard we try, our attempts to live as we know we should are frustrated. But here's the weird thing, because then he makes a strange conclusion. He says in verse 20 that this experience that I do what I do not want to do, when we experience that, it means that we no longer are the ones that do it, but sin in ourselves that is the one that does it. 
He says it twice, actually, in verse 17 and then in verse 20. And so I anticipate a question here because it is possible to take that statement, is not I that do it, does it, but sin in me that does it, to make it seem like he's saying that, well, I'm not actually responsible here. It's actually sin, not my problem. But that's not what Paul is trying to do here. He's not trying to deny personal responsibility. He knows he is guilty. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to locate the source of our rebellion. Where's it coming from? Well, it's not coming from the law. It's coming from him. And so he says, it's not you, it's me. I'm the reason we have to break up. So Paul says, it's over. He says, it's not you, it's me. Now he says, it's complicated. And let me tell you, it is complicated. So I want to pause here, and I actually want to ask you a bit more of a technical question. In the study of the, the history of the study of Romans so far, there has been massive debate over this chapter. And so far, I've avoided the debates. But I want to bring your attention to them because one, you're university students, and I, and I want to stretch you. Uh, but two, and more importantly, I think by asking this question, it's going to clarify for us some things uh, that will be helpful for us personally as we walk as Christians. Now, in verses 13 to 25, Paul describes his experience. And the big question that has dominated Romans 7 throughout the history of its study is which experience is he talking about? Is he talking about life as a Jew before he became a Christian? Or is he talking about life after he became a Christian? Now, on one level, this question doesn't really matter because Paul's big point in this chapter is simple. The law cannot save you. You must look to Jesus. And so whether or not his experience is about him as a Jew before he became a Christian, or whether it was as a Christian, really the big point isn't changed. But the reason it's significant is because the answer to this question will determine for you what you should expect in your Christian life. And we'll explore a bit more as to why that's the case a bit later. But for now, with the person next to you, what do you think? Is Paul talking about a non-Christian, a pre-Christian experience? Or is he talking about his Christian experience? So go for it. Alrighty, I want to give you more time. And technically, there have been people who've been working on this for years and still don't come up with the correct answer. <laughs> uh, but we're just going to see how a minute or two went. Um, what did you guys come up with? Which one do you reckon it was? Not a rhetorical question this time. Curious for reasons. 
more geared towards, I guess, Christians. Uh huh. Although it can also be somewhat applied to non-Christians. So why do you say Christians, Sam? Um, I think Christian because, like, in terms of like, we have this idea. It was like, I, we know what we shouldn't do. And the fact that you know, um, the whole morale, um, such as our problems, which can come up, maybe like stealing or something like that, or like cheating or something like that. It's something which we know we shouldn't do, but yet sometimes we still succumb to mm. these temptations, and so we act upon it. So we do what we don't want to do. Then what we want to do is, which is avoid it, we don't do. Yeah. And so really you're talking about awareness. We know that something is wrong and that we shouldn't do it. Um, did anyone else have um, the opposite opinion and thought that the passage was about non-Christian experience? Well, I mean, like, sorry. Um, Sam's exact same, like, reasoning could be used for non-Christians as well. Because in Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts while the conscience also bears witness and the conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Yeah, and so there's actually an awareness that even non-Christians know that certain things are wrong and that they shouldn't do them, uh, but still do. And this is actually one of the ways that I, I try to get people to understand that they know that they're sinful. Because forget about God's standard for a second. You break your own standard. You have a sense of morality that you know that you yourself break. Therefore, you are sinful. Uh, but that's just a free one. It has nothing to do with the talk. Um, did anyone have anything to say about Christians, uh, non-Christians? Because I, I thought I heard you guys talking about that as yeah. well. Did you change your idea or no? We're, we're, we're kind of like on the edge in terms of like, this could be like a very Jewish way of looking at it in terms of like, their life is in the war. And so, obviously, um, like, it's going to be like this inward struggle of like, the law is the way that, like, heaven, but we're not doing it right. And I was saying it can be applicable for Christianity like we have an answer as well so we can kind of apply that passage for it yeah yeah it's just with different minds and, and i think this is a really important observation because I'm, in one sense it feels like the data points both ways doesn't it um because equally the christian can delight in god's law and call, call it good but so too could the jew right um it is possible for people even people who aren't believers to do good um, or no good and then fail to do it. So there's a whole bunch of things that kind of pull us in different directions. So what do we do? I think the big clue is at the end of the chapter in verse 25. Have a look there and see what it says. I want you to notice that he repeats the tension that he feels after his thanksgiving to God for deliverance in Christ. In other words, the tension still exists after he becomes a Christian. Uh, now, some people might debate this as a particular reason for one way or the other, but I think this is quite significant. Um, people will respond then by saying, well, hang on a minute, if that's the case, what do we do with all this bondage to sin stuff? You know, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. The, the, the experience that Paul describes here is not the triumph of the Christian that we see in, in, verse, in chapter 6, where we die to sin and we're no longer slaves to sin, or chapter 8, where he opens and he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are the ones who have been freed by the Spirit of life in order that the righteous of the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who now walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So they kind of go, well, hang on, chapter 7 is really depressing. It's so bleak, in fact, that this can't be talking about the Christian because it looks a lot like slavery rather than freedom to me. So what do you do? Right? Well, I think that the way forward is to think about what it means to be of the flesh in verse 14. Now, some of you who are using an NIV might not have that there. You'll have the word unspiritual, uh, which is not wrong. 
Uh, but it's not helpful in this case either because it obscures the contrast. See, on the one hand, the law is spiritual, but on the other hand, I am of the flesh. That of the flesh phrase comes from the ESV. It's quite literally rendered there. And that phrase, it actually means fleshly. The law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. And that's a very different term to the one that he's using up in verse 5, where he says, we are in the flesh. That's us before conversion. We are in the flesh. But now the Christian, we're no longer in the flesh, we're in the spirit. But here's the key point and the thing to get in our heads. Even though we are no longer in the flesh, our bodies are still fleshy. We're fleshly. We're riddled with sin. They're not designed for the new life of the spirit that we have been inducted into. And so what we have is this crisis of identity such that Paul can say on the one hand, it's not me that is doing these things. But then on the other, he can say, oh, it is me doing these things. And the way that he reconciles it is to say that even though we are now in the spirit, our body, it lags behind and it weighs us down and it prevents us from living the righteous life that we desire to live. And so it's sort of like my friend Gary. Uh, I went to uni with a guy called Gary. Gary was a med student. And what made Gary exceptional was that he was 14. And so all of us big kids were on the bus going to school and in the middle of us all is Gary. Mind of a 25 year old, body and social skills of a 14 year old. And things were awkward. They weren't natural for him. And so he is operating in two very different spheres at the same time. And what Paul is saying is, I'm Gary. Have a look at verse 21. What does he say? So I find it to be a law. And this is, he's talking here about a principle, not the Mosaic law. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and keeping me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In other words, there is a division within him between his mind and his members. In his mind, in his inner being, he delights in the law of God. Having become a Christian, having been inwardly renewed by the Spirit, he looks around and he can see that everything from God, including and especially the law, it is righteous and holy and good. But in verse 23, he deals with his inner Gary, there is another law or principle at work within the members of his body, his fleshiness. It wages war against the law of his mind and makes him a prisoner of sin. So in other words, despite the fact that Paul has changed allegiances and he's no longer under the dominion of Adam, remember that from chapter 5, instead he's under the dominion of Christ, made new in the spirit, his flesh is still in rebellion and the vestiges of sin still hold sway such that we are unable to do what we truly believe and desire to know and to be right and good and pleasing and holy. And that's why the picture is so bleak in verses 13 to 20. We live a divided existence. It's what I want to call an eschatological tension. Eschatology is the study of the last things. And what are the last things for the Christian? Well, it's our glorification, isn't it? Our, the redemption of our bodies. But that hasn't happened yet. Remember from last week, we've been justified. The new life of the Spirit has begun, but it hasn't been consummated yet. And so we live in this eschatological tension. Some of you might know it as the now but not yet, where we strive to live in the new way of the Spirit 
and bear fruit to God, but we are forever frustrated. Which is why Paul in verse 24 cries out, What a wretched man I am. My inner being is the new man Jesus. I've been set on fire for the Lord, but my body, my body is of the old man Adam. And so he cries out, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. By that, basically he means that he looks to Jesus for the final redemption of his body, when he will be finally and completely redeemed. It's complicated, isn't it? But it makes sense, doesn't it? Our flesh is still in Adam, it's still sinful, and as long as we inhabit our bodies, the law will only ever be bad for us. It will provoke sin, it will drive us to death. And so what we need is a definitive break from the law. The relationship needs to end. Because if we are to find salvation, it won't be from the law. The law is good, but it is not good for you. It cannot save you. So what do we do? Well, we have a look at life after the breakup. Now, I don't know whether you've been through this, but when you break up with somebody, there is a whole host of emotions that well up within you. And one of the many things that you'll end up saying to yourself is, uh, it's, it's really a deep concern. I don't think that I'll ever be able to find anyone like that again. I've missed my chance forever alone. The law was a good guy. What hope then is there for me? This is where you need to remember the Christian gospel, because it is, by definition, hope. If I can get a bit corny, there is another. Now, as much as I can't make any promises about your actual love life, concerning your salvation, I definitely can. Because what the law couldn't do, Jesus did. In his body, he put to death the body of sin and death, such that all of those who call on the name of Jesus, we die to sin, we die to the law, so that we may belong to another. So as much as I hate those Jesus is my boyfriend songs at church, for the purpose of this sermon metaphor, the one who you should be dating is Jesus. Now be aware, if you become a Christian, you are opening yourself up to the divided experience that Paul describes here. You know that game you used to play with your sister? Stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. That's basically what's going to happen as a Christian. It is harder than anything that the unbeliever will experience. They don't have the tension. The reason for that is because they're all flesh. Not just the outside, but the inside as well. But once you're in Jesus, you become a divided man. You become a divided woman. You become a Gary. But here's the thing. Those without the tension are also without the hope. And so if you're a Christian, you wrestle with sin. But you wrestle with sin buoyed by the hope of your final redemption. Because even as we lament, even as we repent, we rejoice. Not only because in Christ we have the power to triumph over our sin, no matter how bleak things seem, but because in Jesus we know that one day what has been made true for us spiritually will also be made true for us physically. And this body of death that weighs us down will be no more. And that is something worth praising God for. So how about we do that in prayer now? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he in his body put to death the body of sin so that it would no longer have dominion over us. Thank you that through that sacrifice 
through your spirit, you allowed us to belong to another and so live in the new way of the spirit rather than in the old way of the written code. Lord, thank you for breaking up the relationship. We pray now that you will give us perseverance to continue in the faith, knowing that one day you will return and give us bodies that match our inner man, that you'll make us whole and perfect like Jesus is, and that we can with him enjoy creation into eternity. Lord, will you help us to hold on until that day and praise you in expectation. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.